0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to 51%'s Crypto Research Podcast. Today, in the podcast, I have a very special guest, Miles Snyder, former research analyst at Multicoin Capital, who left to lead Aurora EOS, a candidate block producer for the EOS blockchain. Miles, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, EOS went live this summer. Uh, it's not that long ago, about six months ago, so it's still young, even though it feels old for some reason. Um, the, the key aspects of EOS are that Less validators, 21 versus over 17,000 on Ethereum. Uh, But the trade-off is on EOS, you get much faster transactions, um, over a thousand versus 12 to 15 on Ethereum currently. Um, And with that introduction, EOS, uh, tell us why you left Multicoin and how you got started on Aurora.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I'd love to sort of like plant a flag there and come back around to those numbers because I think there's a lot to dissect there. That's really interesting. But but yeah, so my background, I, I got into crypto around 2014. Um, became really interested in Bitcoin while I was studying abroad in Argentina. Um, actually, I, I met the CTO of Zappo through a friend of a friend at a dinner, um, and he was the one who, who first told me about Bitcoin. I, I think I had heard about it prior, but he was the one who really, um, uh, you know, sort of explained it to me to the point where I clicked. Um, And I had a little bit of a background in like Austrian economics. I studied economics and I'd been exposed to the Austrian school through like a family friend. And so I think that allowed Bitcoin to to click very quickly for me. Um, So I became very interested in that. um, And then was also interested in the idea of stable coins um, pretty early on, mostly because of my experience living in Argentina where people really like wanted to hold dollars rather than hold the local currency. and so that led me to explore a project called Bitshares, which was one of the earliest stablecoin projects. It was also the first project from Dan Larimer, who, who eventually built EOS. Um, BitShares had a lot of these like design features that eventually got integrated into EOS. So I became pretty familiar with that tech stack at, like early on. Um, and but you know, what have been i I've been following the crypto space since that time. Um, you know, w- watched the launch of Ethereum, some of the earliest projects on Ethereum. Um, the craziness throughout the past couple of years, with you know, with the ICO boom and, and all of that, um, and then you know when EOS uh, was first announced, you, you mentioned that EOS feels like an old project, even though it's like five months old. I think that's probably because the crowd sale lasted for a full year before the before the mainnet went live. Um, so there's been a lot of buzz around the project and I've really been following it since, since that time. And um, I'd say, especially as the, as the mainnet launch uh, approached and um, you know, I started seeing some of the early proofs of concept that were built on there, speaking to a lot of developers, um, speaking to other block producers, I, you know, I really realized that the set of trade-offs that EOS was taking was the right one for a certain um, set of use cases that I, that I think are some of the most exciting near-term use cases. For blockchain technology, and um, you know, I think it's uh, th- I think there's a lot of projects that are really exciting in the space right now, and there's a lot of projects that are going to um, you know produce some really cool things. But as it stands right now, EOS is the one that I'm I think most interested in, and most interested in in spending time on. Um, so uh, you know, at, at Multicoin, I did some really in-depth EOS research that that we published, and you know, as a firm, we started to um, build a lot of conviction in, in EOS specifically. And I started thinking about, you know, what are ways that I could uh, leverage some of that expertise I've built up, some of those relationships I've built up to do something in EOS full-time. And and being a block producer is really, I think, one of the most exciting opportunities in, you know, the entire crypto space, specifically within the EOS space, um, because it kind of allows you to to build a position within an ecosystem that I that I think has tremendous room for growth.
0: That's that's super interesting. And, um, you know, I give you a lot of credit for leaving to, you know, dive into, you know, very specific crypto initiative full time. Uh, you know, I also left to do it um, for 51%, so I give you credit there. And, you know, just going into Aurora EOS, you know, what is the status of you guys as a block producer? Um, you know, I've read some of your podcasts. I, I think that the content you're putting out is very transparent. You know, you lay out a lot of the issues and a lot of, you know, the potential solutions very clearly for people. Um, so you're definitely providing the most informed research. Um, so how is Aurora currently? And, you know, are you guys a block producer yet?
1: Yeah, so the, the way that EOS block production works is that um, there is a 24 seven global liquid democracy that operates on chain. Um, and it's a one token that, it, it gets a little complicated in terms of the actual mechanics, but more or less, it's like a one token, one vote system. Um, so your say in governance, your say in who is elected as a block producer is proportional to your, uh, your stake in the system. Um, and so everyone uh, can cast votes on chain and then the block producers are ranked by the total number of votes received. So the top 21 block producers are the ones who actually add blocks to the blockchain. But then there's, there's about 70 total block producers who are paid by the network. So um, block rewards are actually sent to backup or standby block producers as well. Um, and what that does is it means that you, you constantly have a group that's ready to step in should any of the top 21 be voted out. Um, and we we have noticed, um, you know, there's been significant churn in the in the validator set since the, the mainnet launch, um, and it also kind of um, it keeps the 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 higher rank block producers on their toes. You know, um, there's always competition for them. There's always people who are willing to step in should they, you know, attempt to act maliciously or or not serve the community well or anything like that. Um, so, so about the, the, the number of changes, but it's something like, you know, between 60 and 70 block briefers are paid. Um, we recently broke the top 100 in the ranking, which we're really excited about. Um, and, and we've been, you know, sort of slowly but surely moving up from there. Um, we, we launched a, a little over two weeks ago, so I'm, I'm really proud of where we stand right now. I always realized that being a new block producer, especially being a new block producer that came online after the mainnet launch, um, you know, it was going to take time. It's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. Like we wanted to prove to the community that we can add value, and that doesn't happen right away. I never thought, you know, oh, we deserve a spot in the top twenty-one right away.
0: Um, Got it. And Miles, you know, what has the turnover been? You know, have block producers actually been voted out um, yet, or you know, how does that work?
1: You can actually pull all that data on chain i'm sure there's someone who's like visualized it in uh, in some way i don't i I can't sort of like quantify exactly what the what the turnover has been but there's certainly you know a number of block producers in the top 21 right now who weren't in the top 21 a couple months ago um and and vice versa um yeah i I, i'm not sure exactly how to describe it but if you sort of go and look at the, the history of the chain um I'll send you a website that maybe you can link to in the show notes um, that I that I believe shows um, how, how that has changed
0: over. Yeah, time. no, that that's definitely interesting. And, you know, just going into being a block producer, you know, what actually do you guys do on a day to day basis from a technical perspective? You know, is it just you know download the code and run it, or is this you know a constant research process for you guys and some real active involvement? How does it work, and what can you guys earn um, as well?
1: So it's definitely a very active involvement. Um, you know, the, the network is new. It's changing often. There's upgrades being um, made to the core software. There's also you know the all the block producers around the world are often talking with one another and figuring out how to optimize things. Um, you know, what's the best way to, to to run servers? What's the best sort of hardware setup to use, or, or cloud setup, or whatever it may be? So we're in constant dialogue with the community, with other block producers um, from a technical perspective. Perspective to to get things um, you know a, a, as good as they can be. Um, you know, we we try to keep our you know for Aurora EOS personally, we're trying to keep our setup very dynamic as it stands right now because we recognize that the network is changing a lot. Uh, I think as time goes on, block producers will uh, invest more in very specific hardware and, and you know uh, having bare metal servers and data centers and things like that. Um, but you don't want to do that too early because you don't want to make investments. In in, in things that that may not ultimately be be the best for for what the network needs
0: got um, it that makes a lot of sense and you know just from an investment perspective you know because this is a more institutional podcast how easy yeah. would it be for you know aurora eos version 2 to spin up i mean is it is it hard you know technical capital investment capital to become a block producer and displace another or yeah. is this a long-term so- run
1: you know, we're, we're kind of like actively testing that in the real world, right? We're, we're one of the very first block producers to come online after the mainnet launch, and it's sort of an interesting, uh, it's it's different from a lot of the other block producers because they, uh, they they were around early on, and they a lot of them managed to sort of ride that momentum into getting a lot of um, early votes, where we're, quote-unquote, starting from scratch, and um, we're, we're one of the first to do that, so it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of run we can make and so far we're, we're happy with our progress but obviously we'd like to get um much higher in the rankings being a block producer is this interesting combination of like financial capital and maybe like what you would call social capital because um it, essentially what a block producer is is it is it's the equivalent of a bitcoin miner or a proof of stake validator on on another network Right. These are the parties that are that are you know they're they're assembling all the transactions that have been broadcast to the network, pack, packaging them into blocks, and then adding those blocks to the blockchain. Um, in proof of work, you have essentially groups that um, purchase really expensive, very specific hardware for doing one very specific task, which is finding hashes. And um, you know, if you have the most hash power, then you have the most uh, block production capabilities on the network. Um, in a pure proof of stake system, if you have the the biggest stake, um, you have the most block production capabilities. In EOS, you uh, you need to earn votes. So, not only uh, is the the block the block production it's split equally among the top 21. So, even if you have the most votes out of the top 21, you're still only producing one out of every 21 blocks. So, among that core group of validators, it, the the actual um, split among, you know, how many blocks each one is producing is exactly equal. Um, and so, what, what, you, what you, in order to get elected, what you need to do is you do need to make some investments in terms of like just basic hardware or getting getting your your, your servers up and running, and and that's not insignificant. It, it very much depends on your setup, where you're located, things like that. Um, but it's it's nothing like the upfront capital costs of say proof of work mining. Um, However, what you also have to do is you have to leverage social capital. You have to go out there and um, get your name out in the community. You have to prove to the community that you add value and you have to earn votes from the community. And you do that by, by bringing value in any number of ways. So at Aurora, we're specifically focused on, um, you know, right now we're specifically focused on education um, because EOS is an on-chain governance blockchain uh the voters can actually influence the direction that the chain takes so it's really important that people are able to take an informed perspective and and make informed votes because on-chain governance is a very new thing so we want to encourage participation and encourage informed participation but there's other block producers who are bringing value in in much different ways there's block producers who specialize in building tooling and infrastructure. infrastructures block producers who specialize in dap development who specialize in wallet development Um, And that's actually one of the coolest things, in my opinion, about EOS and about delegated proof of stake is that you've got 70 plus independent companies all over the world who are working on different specific things that that make the EOS community and the EOS ecosystem stronger. That's
0: that's really interesting. And I I want to unpack two things there. So, you know, I know EOS gets a lot of flack in, in the marketplace, but for problems that we'll go into in a little bit, but in reality, EOS has actual liquid democracy today where token holders are actually voting for updates whereas in ethereum and bitcoin that's not the case is that correct
1: so uh, to to get specific about how governance works today it's it's a liquid democracy in the sense that you can if you hold tokens you can choose to vote directly for block producers or you can proxy your vote to another account that votes on your behalf Um, and proxies are really cool because if you're a small token holder um, or even a medium sized token holder, maybe you're not that interested in actively doing due diligence on block producers on an ongoing basis. Um, but there are parties out there, sort of invested parties, who, who are willing to do that. And they they may be, you know, they may be individuals who are sort of ideological and, and you know have specific thoughts about the direction that it can take. It may be, you know, developers who are building on top of it who say, "Hey, proxy does, and we'll we'll make sure to select the best block producers who are going to support development." Um, it could be enterprises. It could be investment firms. There's all sorts of proxies. So that's where the sort of liquid democracy side of things comes from. Um, as it stands right now, you can vote on chain for for who the block producers are, um, and it's it's sort of like a. Um, like a corporate governance structure that's sort of auditable and transparent on a blockchain. You, in, the analogy is that you, you elect like a board of directors who are the block producers who, who run the blockchain and make decisions. Now, what the community is working on is a full on-chain referendum system that would allow token holders not just to vote for who the block producers are, but also to vote on specific referenda to say, hey, do we want to update the constitution? Or, hey, do we want to integrate this new feature? And then token holders can actually vote yes or no on-chain. Um, that referendum system is, is being built, but it's not actually uh, live yet.
0: Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, developers have... You know, significant um, time investments in where they build on public blockchains. You know, to learn solidity takes time. To, you know, to move a, a, a decentralized application to another chain can be hard. You know, if not impossible. So, you know, when do you envision that the rubber meets the road for developers building on EOS? In my mind, it would take at least I don't know a year until we see interesting projects, or maybe maybe even longer. Um, what's your um, take here?
1: I, I would say that my guess is that it's actually going to be less than that. I think these things um, they, they tend to move very fast. EOS has a set of features that's going to allow it to move very fast and I think for example, if you compare like EOS to Ethereum, you know EOS was able to leverage a lot of the lessons learned from Ethereum and and build you know on top of that and that allows it to, to move even faster. I think the one of the big catalysts is going to be um, the price of resources. So as it stands right now, the EOS token model is designed such that your EOS holding is a claim on network resources. So if you hold 1% of all EOS tokens, you're entitled to 1% of the CPU and bandwidth for for the network. Um, And so if you're a developer and you wanna build an app that uses a lot of of bandwidth, for example, you need to hold a large amount of tokens. Same thing if you're a user who wants to to use a lot of bandwidth make a ton of transactions per second or something like that. Now, the problem is that as it stands today, what you would do is say that you need 100,000 EOS worth of resources, um, but you only need it for a fixed amount of time. Well, you have to front a really big upfront capital cost to purchase those 100,000 EOS then you're um, taking on price risk during the time that you hold them for access to the resources and then then you'd sell them afterwards if you didn't want them because it's this claim in perpetuity. Now, what is being built right now are solutions that would allow you to essentially rent bandwidth. So if you're a large token holder and I'm a user and I want access and you have 100,000 EOS and I want access to those resources, I can essentially pay you a fixed amount of EOS up front, call it, you know, I pay you 100 EOS and you lend me those resources for a fixed amount of time and then they go back to you so it's almost like you know if ethereum is like a pay per minute cell phone plan eos would allow you to do like a monthly plan where you where you purchase a certain amount of resources for a fixed period of time and what that does is it lowers the upfront costs for users and developers significantly um, and it allows large token holders to actually lease out their, their holdings in, in, um, in order to earn a return on them. Um,
0: Got it. So, so Miles, sure. just unpacking that a little bit, I mean, you know, for those who run AWARE, there's various ways to pay for network usage on public blockchains. In Ethereum, you pay um, set gas prices based on basically Ether. Um, in other blockchains like NEO, you pay in a separate token called gas. In EOS... If you own a certain portion of the network, you're entitled to that portion of the resources. So I guess my main question here is, you know, if, if I'm a decentralized application or a business or a government, and I want to buy, let's say, if I need one percent of EOS tokens, you know, there's inflation with EOS. So you know, how long does that one percent stake, you know, remain a one percent stake? Is it, you know, one percent forever? Is it one percent for ten years? How exactly does that work?
1: Sure. Yeah, let's dive into this a little bit because I think it's really interesting. Um, you, you talked about the different ways that you, you pay for, for blockchain usage. So the way that I think about it is that every blockchain is, is it's simply a, um, it's a network that's a set of resources that are scarce. And you have people who want to access those resources and you have to figure out a way to, to decide who gets access to what. So in Bitcoin and Ethereum, the way it works is that if you want access to a certain amount of the network resources, you simply pay on a a sort of per transaction basis, you have to pay the gas costs, which means that you have to pay the miners for, for executing the computation. And those fees go directly to miners. So they go directly to the validators. However, in order to not make those fees astronomically high, a lot of what these networks do is that they have inflation as well. So they have inflation of the, um, the underlying token base and that gets paid to miners um, in order to subsidize the cost of, of transaction fees. So miners get paid through inflation, they also get paid through transaction fees, but if they only got paid through transaction fees, those fees would probably be really high so that, that inflation acts as, as sort of a subsidy. Um, what EOS does is it says let's eliminate transaction fees entirely and only compensate the validators through inflation. Um, and in, uh, EOS is currently managing managing to do that at one percent inflation per year. So it's it's not um, super high, and one percent is enough to to compensate the validator set um, on EOS. And so. What that allows you to do is it eliminates individual transaction fees. And that's really more of a user experience thing. So people, you know, EOS has been um, sort of sold as like a a free, a blockchain that has free usage. And I don't really like saying that because nothing is free when you have a, a fixed set of resources. Instead, what it's saying is that from a user experience perspective, you don't have to pay for each individual transaction. You don't have to calculate the cost of, of doing any single action on the blockchain. Um, but you, w- the way you're paying for things is that you are sort of accepting a, a pro rata inflation based on your holdings. That makes sense?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, I, I think it's worth, I know we're switching topics a lot here, but it's worth it because we're getting sure. into the weeds here. And I, I guess another question here is that um, well, I mean, first of all, the inflation is very low. 1% inflation is well below Ethereum at 5%, you know, which which is hoping to be half a percent on proof of stake and, and below Bitcoin at around 4%. Uh, I did a deep dive on this a few weeks ago. But I guess my other question here is, you know, if inflation is that low, then why don't people think of EOS as, you know, say a store of value like Bitcoin?
1: Um, Well, I think there's probably a few reasons there. One is that, so the original design um, for the EOS white paper that that was released in, I think, May of 2017 called for 5% inflation of which part went to block producers and then part went to an on-chain treasury, sort of like what, um, what Dash and Decred do. Um, now the community has kind of, as a whole, soured on that idea of the on-chain treasury. Um, there are groups of block producers who, who are working on potential implementations, but um, it remains to be seen whether or not that that actually gets enacted. Um, my guess would be that that if it does, it will be with uh, you know like a half percent inflation or something like that. Um, but but that's 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 kind of an open question. Um, I think, you know, but even still, that would be 1.5% inflation, which is still pretty low. Um, I think, uh, you know, another part of the reason that people don't necessarily think of EOS as a store of value right now is simply because it's it's really young and new and often changing and, you know, new software has bugs, new software has more risks and store of value sort of by definition should be as as low risk as, as possible, um, which is, you know, why it's, it's taken bitcoin you know nine years to to sort of solidify that position um i think but um but we'll see i think one of the things so th- this actually transitions nicely into what i was talking about earlier how there's a mechanism that's in place that allows you to to rent out your token so if you're a large holder you can actually rent out your resources and theoretically you could earn more than one percent a year on those you know those markets are just now getting developed and just now getting going so we don't really know what the um, average rate of return is. But but theoretically if you're a large holder, you could beat inflation just by renting out your um, excess resources that you're not actually using.
0: Got it and um, Miles, just to go into this for people who aren't aware, I mean could we I mean one of the reasons for renting out your EOS and spare resources to earn money is is to help with, I believe, RAM pricing, um, which is which was a problem or a concern on EOS. Could you dive into, you know, RAM pricing, how that works and how this is a is a great solution for that?
1: So, so it's actually not a solution to RAM pricing. It's a solution to the pricing for, for the other resources, which are computation and bandwidth. Got it. Um, so RAM pricing, it, it, it gets really technical, so it's probably not worth diving into completely, but the RAM pricing is... is um, is based on the Bancor algorithm. So it's a, a programmatic market maker that decides on the price of RAM. Um, what happened is that the network went live and speculators stepped in to buy up a bunch of the RAM, hoping that developers would then come in and need that RAM and they'd be able to sell it to them at higher prices. Um, so we had a short period of time where speculation drove up the price of RAM to make it um, you know, just not cost efficient for developers. Uh, then what the, the block producers did is they decided to slowly drip more RAM into the system. So literally with every block that passes, a very small amount of RAM gets added into the system, which means that in perpetuity, more RAM is being added slowly but surely. And that alone, I think, discouraged a lot of the speculation. And we've seen RAM prices come down significantly. And then block producers um, and some of the other core developers have been working to actually optimize the software to make um, RAM more efficient. So, for example, there was a there was an update released recently that actually made the co- the cost of account creation, which uses RAM, and that's why it costs. Um, you know, you have to pay EOS to make an account. They managed to reduce that by 25% just through a software optimization. So that's interesting. We're yeah. at a point now,
0: and Miles, just real quick. I mean, what's the difference between RAM pricing and having a stake? For the E like like if I own one percent of EOS tokens, I'm supposed to control one percent of the network. But you know why is RAM pricing separate? I know this is a, a stupid question, but it, it's interesting.
1: No, it's not. It's not a stupid question. It's actually more of like a technical question that I'm probably not the best person to dive into it with. But it it, it relates to to how um, RAM is is used. Sort of in computation, um, RAM needs to be more immediately accessible. So it doesn't make sense to um, sort of say, "Hey, if you you know if you have one percent, you get one percent of the RAM," because you really want that RAM to be used only by the people that need it at that time. Um, so that's sort of different from from the computation and bandwidth, which is why um, RAM needs to be uh, sort of allocated based on this programmatic internal market to to keep it operating sort of near capacity and, and have it be allocated most efficiently, whereas the resources that you get access to simply based on your stake are computation and bandwidth.
0: Got it, do you think, I mean, we don't have to dive into this too deep, but I mean, do you think that the differentiation between those two kind of in a way or any way undermines holding EOS because there's a separate market for what people thought they would control or people were well, well aware of this differentiation within the community?
1: So this, this has been um, differentiated for a long time. I can't remember what the original white paper um, said with regards to this, but I don't, think, I don't think the white paper ever called for RAM to be pro rata. Um, but really the more important um, uh, thing for, especially for users is, is computation and bandwidth. That's really that what allows you to, to perform actions on the network um, RAM relates more, um, you know, developers have to, have to think about that certainly, but it, for users, it relates more to account creation costs. And that's why block producers have been, have been working to, to get those costs down. And they've done a really good job of it. I mean, account creation is probably never going to be free because like I said, it's a, you know, it's a scarce set of resources, but they've done a really good job of, of getting those prices down to the point where applications can can think about, um, you know, actually paying to create accounts for their users as a user onboarding cost and users who, who want to onboard directly into the EOS ecosystem themselves can do so without having to, to spend a ton of money. So I, you know, at today's price of that, I believe RAM is uh, or creating an account is significantly less than, than a dollar.
0: Awesome, so just switching gears a little bit, before we get into recent events and what's going on with the EOS, it's more of an institutional question. I mean, why do you think that you know mainstream investors, institutions that are now warming up to crypto ETFs and, and custody solutions are coming around, you know, why should institutions get excited about EOS um, specifically? And, you know, do you think EOS will play into, you know, active fund management and, and buying by institutions?
1: I do think so. So I think that the, the reason I'm excited about EOS is because I think it's the, um, the platform on which, you know, large-scale user-facing dApps that, that can actually gain a lot of traction are going to be built because it has the right architecture for that. Um, it has the, you know, it's it's really optimizing for throughput um, and performance and scalability, which, as we've seen with other networks, is a severe bottleneck um, for for having real applications built on top of it. But then it's got these other features like human readable account names, no individual transaction fees. It's got a really innovative. Um, account permission and key management system that's kind of built into the protocol. Um, All these things are really friendly for developers, really friendly for for users. Um, It utilizes the WebAssembly virtual machine, which is um, sort of becoming the standard in blockchain as as the most performant virtual machine for smart contract platforms. And so I think that a lot of the use cases that I find really exciting, which, um, you know, gaming, NFTs, decentralized exchanges, um, decentralized social networks, um, stable coins, tokenized securities, I think EOS is the right platform for a lot of these. And so I think among smart contract platforms, I expect it to, to make probably the most noise in the, in the coming years. So that's like, from a from perspective of, of why is this exciting, what's gonna get built on top of it, that, that's the reason I'm excited about it. But then from the perspective of an investor, what I think is most interesting about EOS is that, um, you know, through the, this, uh, the, the, the token model is very unique because it's says access to resources and because it can be rented out. That if you're a large token holder, you can hold EOS as a productive asset. Um, so you can hold EOS that you're renting out and actually earning a return on um, you know, through, uh, through, through leasing out that bandwidth and that computation and those other resources to people in the um, network who need it. And it, I like to sort of draw this like digital real estate metaphor um, because that it, it's kind of similar. It's like you know, if you're a real estate investor, you you purchase a property and you you, you spend the money upfront because you want that um, sort of perpetual income stream from being able to, to rent that out. Um, and I see EOS going a similar way. Whereas there may be users and developers who don't want to front that upfront cost and use it, but they'll they'll rent it from from people who do. And I think that's a really exciting new new model. Um, and you know, right now there are applications that are built on EOS. One is called Shintai, and those allow you to rent out your resources. But there's a new proposal being put forth called the Resource Exchange that would create an in-protocol liquidity pool where investors could, um, you know, lend their tokens to the pool and earn earn a return on on people who had um, rented out those resources. In addition to that, though. Um, there are also other internal markets on the EOS platform. So there's the RAM market, which we discussed, um, and the protocol collects a, a small fee on, on that RAM market. And then there's also um, what's called the name auction market. So There are premium account names. I mentioned that EOS has these human readable account names. So there are premium account names that are actually auctioned off. And the plan for the resource exchange is that the proceeds from both the RAM market and the name auction market will be added to the books of the resource exchange. So if you're an investor, not only are you, you earning a return from, from renting out your resources, you're also earning a return from whatever those other internal markets make um, during the time that, that you've lent your tokens to the reps. Um, and there's actually plans for for future internal markets that could take place on EOS, um, You know, including EOS um, you know, storage and some other stuff that's being discussed. And so that creates a really interesting, um, uh, sort of in protocol economy that investors can participate in that is pretty different to to anything else I've seen in the space.
0: Super interesting, and let's let's move on to uh, I guess the more contentious you know things we wanted to talk about you know recent events with EOS and I you know I think to begin I know you wanted to circle back to the validators versus Ethereum and the transactions per second versus Ethereum. You know what did I get wrong there and and what do you want to uh, update us there on?
1: So the, the transactions per second isn't like the necessarily the, the best metric to use because it's it depends on the type of transaction the quality of the transaction the size of the transaction etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but so EOS has um, cleared more than 3,000 transactions per second actually currently um, now those were that was sort of a, a stress test that was done and those were very lightweight transactions um, so, you know, in terms of what the actual throughput will be on a day-to-day basis, it's probably going to be somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000, depending on on what exactly is going on. But there are also a lot of plans in place, you know, no one in the EOS community thinks like, hey, we got 3000 TPS and we're good to go from here. Like, let's just stay, stay where we are. I mean, the, the whole project has been built from the ground up for scalability and there's other improvements um, that, are, that are sort of coming into place um so so that's that that's one thing but um, I really wanted to touch more on the, the the concept of validators so like I said with EOS you have um, you know you have 21 who are actually producing blocks at any given time right um, now that those 21 can and have changed over time so token holders because it's this, constant ongoing liquid democracy, if token holders mobilize, they could vote any one of those producers out and, and replace them with a new producer. So it's a much more dynamic validator set. And the way that I like to think about it is that although there's 21 at any given time, you know, there's 70 that are compensated by the network. And there's a significant mo- number that are moving in and out of those 21. So if we talk about, you know, over the course of say one month, you could look at the number of entities that actually add blocks to the blockchain on EOS, and it's gonna be more than 21. And you could look at the number of entities that actually add blocks to the blockchain on, on for example, Ethereum. And I don't know what the number is, but you know, it's probably not gonna be that high because the way that mining pools work with economies of scale, you have, the, you know, the three or four largest mining pools produce the vast majority of, of the blocks there. And then there's sort of the long tail of other miners that, that maybe find a block every now and then. Um, and so I think it's like, it's a little bit, um, I, I don't think it's a great comparison when people just take, you know, the number 21 versus the number, what did you say? It was 17,000 validators on Ethereum? Yep. And is that, that's, my, that's people who are actually running mining Hardware?
0: I'm I'm not sure on the specifics, to be honest.
1: Yeah, because I I was going to say that that number actually sounds pretty high. My guess would be that that's the number of full nodes, um, maybe including miners.
0: And and the other thing, Miles, though, I mean, when people talk about the number of nodes, I mean, so there's obviously more than 21. uh, More than 21 are paid by the network uh, basically to incentivize them to stand standby, which is great. Um, But I mean, the flip side of this, I mean, there's a few nodes or a few mining pools that I mean, one or two mining pools control the majority of Bitcoin. So why does EOS get so much pushback for having 21 when something as popular as Bitcoin has entities like one or two entities that control, you know, near 50% of the network?
1: I mean, I think it's a lot of it has to do with a misguided argument around this like semantics of decentralization. Um, I think the number of validators is a very flawed metric because decentralization is such a complex topic. Um, You know, uh, my friend, Tony Shang, who's one of the best writers in crypto, um, everyone should go check out his website, TonyShang.com, but he wrote a great article about this, like, how do you define decentralization? Um, And uh, the conclusion is kind of that we haven't figured out a great way to define it yet. There's so many vectors to decentralization and the quote unquote number of validators is just one. Um, People hear 21 and they just immediately think that's, a really small number; it's it's way too low. Um, but like I said, it's 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 twenty one at any given time. Um, but it's it's far more than twenty one that have actually participated in that process since since mainnet launch. So Got they, it. Those <laughs> numbers are kind of thrown around, and, and people people get a little um, scared when they hear you know a small number like that.
0: So getting competitive here, I mean, it, it seems that if we're going to talk about a successful smart contract platform that has less validators with higher throughput. It seems to me that EOS would have public blockchains like NEO, which has I don't know a dozen validators, which is less decentralized. I mean, it seems like public blockchains like that would be more in the crosshairs to get, you know, destroyed by EOS versus something like Ethereum, which is very different. Um, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, so I actually don't know much about NEO really at all. Um, I haven't studied that probably super closely, so I can't really speak to that. But. Um,
0: I'm not short on that, Neo or anything like that. Just, just a comparison.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and I, I know that there, there was. Uh, I did see some, some stuff pop up, sort of in the on crypto Twitter and stuff about the number of validators on Neo. But I'm not so, sh- uh, I'm not sure about that. Um, however, if you compare EOS to Ethereum, I, I think you're right. I mean. People talk about the smart contract platform race or the the competition among smart contract platforms as a winner take all scenario, and I just don't think it is because you have you have different use cases that could be built on smart contract platforms that need to optimize for different things, and you also have different platforms that take radically different sets of trade offs. Um, and it's sort of like you know when you have two platforms that are as different as Ethereum and EOS. Um, it's not going to be a winner take all because there's different things that would get built on each. Um, now as I mentioned before, I think when you when you look at the blockchain use cases or for example, let's look at some of the stuff that that managed to gain traction on Ethereum. I think the first was obviously um, crowdfunding through the, through the ICO boom, but that really has has died off and I think there's there's too many legal questions now for, for that to be considered like a killer use case going forward. but, um, but we had NFTs, so you know, Ethereum has these token standards that have, um, that, you know, have, have really caught on. And so NFTs stands for non-fungible tokens. Um, and that's things like CryptoKitties. Um, and those caught on on Ethereum, but they basically made the chain grind to a screeching halt. Um, you had people who were, who were using this CryptoKitties saying Ethereum can only tra- process 15 transactions per second. Um, and that uh, it ended up being kind of a flash in the pan as a, as a result. Whereas, uh, you know, with, with EOS you have a lot more throughput. Um, then you have some people have tried doing things like decentralized social media, like there was Peep um, was a was a Twitter clone that was built on Ethereum, but um, that ultimately requires people to pay these transaction costs every time they write something blockchain, and that's a really bad user experience. Um, and then you, know, you have things like decentralized exchanges like the zero X project, which takes a lot of things off chain, but, um, but you still end up having the, these, this latency um, and these cost issues because of the way the Ethereum blockchain is designed. So it's got longer block times and you've got you know gas costs. And so I think of the, the, those three use cases, when you think about them from a user perspective, it makes a lot more sense to build on a blockchain that has um, you know no individual transaction fees and higher throughput and and much lower latency, so I see a lot of those use cases sort of migrating slowly but surely to to EOS, and I think the use cases that are going to stay on Ethereum are the things that can optimize for decentralization even at the expense of performance. So things that you know so necessarily need to be ultra ultra decentralized that they can um, you know sort of have higher fees and, and lower latency. Um, I, you know the, the, the reason I'm really excited about EOS is I think the market for the, the former set of applications is much bigger than the market for these applications that really need to strive for ultra decentralization. I think that EOS offers enough decentralization to give you the properties you need, but can also get you a, a really good user experience got it and um, miles just but I do you think there's room for, for ethereum as well and, and perhaps other platforms
0: no that's super interesting and just you know going on the other side of the spectrum from ethereum you have private blockchains run on you know AWS Microsoft Azure which has you know arguably centralized control and, and they're becoming kind of taboo to talk about a bit um, because there are single points of failure there but you know how do you view private blockchains for enterprise it seems like eOS would you know, has the decentralization to kill that market, but also the scale that those types of private blockchains offer that are run on the cloud. You know, how do you view those markets?
1: So I, I haven't studied the private blockchain space super closely, to be honest. It's, a, it's still a little bit of a mystery to me. Um, like if you're a company that, you know, if you're a single company, uh, I don't quite understand why you would want to run like a, a blockchain as your as your backend if it would just within your company what I do understand though is like the idea of consortium blockchains so if you had say a group of banks that all wanted to um, you know share a ledger but they don't necessarily trust one another um, but they also don't want to you know let, the entire public participate in the validation process, then yeah, maybe you have a, a consortium chain where JP Morgan, you know, Citibank, Goldman, et cetera, et cetera, all, all run nodes and sort of all have equal validation power, but they're able to create a neutral ledger that's shared among them. And you can, you can imagine other sort of groups of, of consortia that, that like those use cases. Um, and I think what ultimately will happen is that we will see things like that, that will be built as like side chains um, that are, uh, sort of used by these, um, by these private enterprises to run sort of consortium chains that are shared among them, but are not open to the public. Um, and that those side chains will be able to to communicate with a with main chain, whether that's like a side chain built on Ethereum through something like Plasma, or a side chain built on EOS through EOS's inter-blockchain communication. And that way you can have these consortium side chains that are quote-unquote private that could technically still interact with and send assets to and receive assets from um, a, a mainnet blockchain.
0: Got it. And just one last question before we go into recent events in EOS. So in my mind, there's there's kind of like not a race going on, but if we think about this in extremes, you know, Ethereum, wants to solve decentralization on layer one and then has numerous scaling, layer, scaling events on layer two that they're looking into, you know, Shasper and, and sharding. And, you know, that's basically a multi-year process. Um, my question for you is, you know, will EOS solve its near-term issues before Ethereum is able to actually implement layer two solutions? It seems, taking a very unbiased viewpoint here, that EOS may be able to solve some of its near-term issues before Ethereum is able to get, you know, Shasper out and, and, and proof of stake in mass. Um, I'm wondering I, uh, what your take is I, here.
1: I, I do think that it will. Um, I think that you know, Shasper, which is the sort of combination of, of proof of stake and Casper, and or sorry, um, of sharding and the Casper proof of stake implementation, is you know, I get the sense that that's quite a ways away. Um, you know, at least one to two years, and that's a lot of time in the blockchain space. And you know, like you said, EOS is five months old, and, and look at the progress that we've seen. Look at the innovation we're seeing taking place. Um, you know, go to dapradar.com and take a look at the daily active users and the transaction accounts and the um, volume of the dApps that are built on EOS versus the dApps that are built on Ethereum. It's it's really impressive. And um, I think people are gonna start to to take note of those numbers more and more as time goes on. Um, so you, you know, you mentioned like sharding and Casper, which is is like an optimization of the entire chain. And then there's these layer two things like plasma and state channels and things like that. I think those will help um, Ethereum help scale in the near term and help some applications get built. You also have to remember there, you know, there's competition from EOS, there's competition from, from Cosmos, um, from Definity, from, from Hashgraph and developers are really gonna have to decide where, where does it make most sense to build my application? Where Where is the user base? Um, where are the best development tools, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, building on Plasma is, is still kind of new. And I think one thing that people don't realize about Plasma is that what Plasma is, is it basically creates a, a blockchain, uh, like, a, like a layer two blockchain that um, periodically or sort of can, can close out on the EOS main chain, um, kind of like a, like a payment channel in Lightning Network. Now, what happens is you, say you have an application like CryptoKitties that's get, that gets built as a plasma chain. So it's a, it's a plasma chain specifically for CryptoKitties. But then you wanna trade your CryptoKitty on a decentralized exchange that exists on another plasma chain. What you would have to do is you still have to go up to the base layer and then make a trans transaction on the base layer that takes you to the next to the dex plasma chain and then go on to that that other plasma chain and so plasma chains don't solve the problem of going between applications that are built as separate plasma chains
0: got it and, 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 right and just now you're
1: still subject to the main layer like scalability issues when you try to do that
0: got it and just just for those who are unaware i mean plasma is supposed to be off of the main ethereum chain and to allow for you know instant and infinite transactions between the two parties and then they can close out their transactions on the main ethereum chain for security but it's not implemented yet um you know just for the listeners um i'm not pushing back too much because this is supposed to be an eos focused podcast i don't own eos i do own ethereum but i want to learn more about eos Um, that's why i'm have miles snyder on here for these great questions so miles just moving on from you know scalability and what can happen there. Um, let's go into the recent events on EOS. Um, you know, let's go back to the launch. I know, you know, let's go back to the original pushbacks that EOS got. I mean, the, the main and the first one was that it had a four billion dollar ICO. People thought it was too much money, and it was open ended. It took over a year. Um, how do you feel about this? And can Block One or the controller of this four billion dollars actually deploy this money to be to build on EOS?
1: Yeah, I mean that—that's that, a question for for the sort of team at Block One, right? They 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 launched this ICO, they raised an insane amount of money, and now they're essentially an asset management firm. Um, and what they what they've said is that they want to redeploy that capital into the ecosystem to to help developers build on top of. EOS, And I think some of that they'll do internally by building things themselves. That's certainly what they've signaled. Um, And some of that they'll do by deploying it to to other developers in the ecosystem. And the first way they've done that is by um, creating this billion-dollar EOS VC fund that um, that allocates capital to different managers, including Galaxy, um, SVK, uh, FinLab AG, um, and Tomorrow BC, I think, so far. Um, Oh, and EOS Global is another one. Um, and they've sort of taken that capital and given it to these other allocators who can survey the EOS ecosystem and and seed a lot of projects. So I think um, like raising a ton of capital isn't uh, doesn't solve all your problems and sometimes it creates new problems. But it also like some people were like, oh, it's it's terrible that they did that. You know, deployed well, that capital can be very very effective in in helping the ecosystem um, grow significantly and evolve much more quickly um I you know I get the sense that, that block one is still um, still sort of ironing out their their internal structure' they're, they're bringing a lot of they're bringing on a lot of seasoned executives. Um, you can just look at their recent hires and I expect to see sort of more public communication from them hopefully soon about what exactly their roadmap is and what exactly they're they're working on. They've, they've stayed a little tight-lipped thus far. Um, but we're actually seeing great things from the community regardless so that that's that's pretty cool to see um, now in terms of their, their capital raise you know proof of stake systems depend a lot on the uh, initial distribution of, of those systems and so what they did is you know they created a smart contract that kind of tried to mimic um, proof of work without without wasting all the energy um, and the way that it was structured it sort of forced people to cost average their way into a position um, and it lasted for an entire year so people could move into and out of a position based on how development was progressing. And so that gave you sort of a year's worth of market churn before the before the mainnet even went live, which I think, um, you know, was probably a good thing. Doing like, you know, quote, unquote, ICOs or crowd sales is just, it's, it's a really hard thing to get right. Um, and I don't think there's any model that, that, has, that has been like, oh yeah, that's the perfect model. Um, what, I, what I really don't like are, are capped crowd sales. Where you know they say, "Hey, we're going to raise 100 million, and, and you know if we get there in five days or five seconds, it doesn't matter." And we saw some of those in 2017, where these projects launched crowd sales that sold out in like you know three minutes or something, and uh, essentially allowed these whales to, to come in, buy a huge portion of the tokens, by you know pay higher gas costs to get their transactions through, and then the initial distribution is just absolutely. Uh, horrendous, and that can really affect the long-term success of a project. So I think that, um, that the way that Block One structured the crowd sale sort of avoided some of those issues. It created other issues, but um, but the, for me, the worst thing is a is a capped crowd sale that, that sells out really quickly. So I actually prefer you know an uncapped sale.
0: That's interesting, and you know Block Stack, you know there's there's several companies like Block Stack that have done really clean. Crowd sales and uh, you know ZeroX did a really clean crowd sale. they, yeah, they tried to. Job yeah, they. I mean, they capped the amount of money on ZeroX so that they could expand distribution and, and make their ecosystem larger by putting tokens in more more holders' hands. But you know, my pushback there is if ICOs get regulated, everybody is screwed. You know, not just the guys that did a clean raise, but uh, you know, just moving on. I mean, the the main the other issue is EOS's constitution. Um, you know, there was calls for it to be rewritten. Uh, When EOS launched, um, you know, what is the constitution in EOS? What's going on with it? Um, Yeah, anything there?
1: So the the EOS constitution is it's been described as a digital peer-to-peer terms of service agreement So it's like when you, you know, when you use new Apple products and they give you their terms of service agreement You agree to it. Um, And the way that you do that in a decentralized way is you have a a human readable uh, Contract that's written out. You take a hash of that contract and then users actually sign uh, that hash using uh, their you know, private key every time they make a transaction on a network. And the idea is that by doing that, you're binding yourself to the terms of the constitution. It's it's an interesting idea in terms of like decentralized governance and how do you define a community and how do you uh, create a, a shared set of standards for the community or set of standards for, for block producers and things like that. Um, but what it is not is it's not enforceable programmatically. So for example, the constitution says you know no vote buying is allowed for for block producers now. That the Constitution says that, but um, you know, what happens if a block producer gets gets caught vote buying? The, the protocol doesn't automatically kick them out because there's no way to enforce that in the software. So what the the Constitution kind of tries to do is create like a a reference point for the community to define behaviors that are that are good or not. But it ultimately still relies on the community for for enforcement. So with regards to the vote buying issue, for example, um, if the community sort of agrees with that, then they'll vote out block producers who get caught vote by But if they if they don't mobilize to do that, then the constitution is kind of ineffective because it just says things that that don't get enforced. So the, the constitution that was included with the mainnet launch was a very early, primitive, I, I think pretty, you know, well intentioned but but quickly written version. And it was it was sort of sold as like not even sold, that's not the right word. It was presented as, hey, this is the constitution we'll use in the interim until the community can ratify an official constitution via a referendum. And so that's where the community stands right now. It's like, hey, how do we proceed with this constitutional um, conversation? You know, How do we create a constitution? What do we want in- to include in it? Um, people are having a conversation around like, you know, do we include things that aren't enforceable? Like if so, what's the point? If so, how do we think about enforcing them, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a very nuanced and complex conversation that's been happening over the course of the last few months and, and we'll probably continue for some time. Um, I think that we, you know, we at Aurora are gonna be putting out um, some, some blog posts and articles exploring this constitutional issue and exploring some of the, the trade-offs and, and what, makes, what we think makes sense there and, and what doesn't. Um, we, we don't have to dive too deep into that right now, but I, I do think that the constitution should be simplified from where it's at right now. I think that it, it should be a, a pretty simple document that sort of defines the behavior of a block pieces that that's expected because we know that it's not enforceable. It should ultimately just serve as kind of a reference point for the community. Um, and I think specifically there's, there's an issue around arbitration um, and whether or not that, that should be something that's included as the baseline of the protocol, I don't think it should be, and we'll be we'll be diving into the reasons um, why that's the case. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's where things stand right now.
0: That's super interesting, and you know, I wanted to save time for the last question, and it's on everyone's mind. It's definitely at the forefront of EOS. Um, you guys put out a great, uh, informative, detailed post on governance with EOS. Um, there's been rumors or calls that block producers have been buying votes and governance can never be solved and people are pointing to, you know, Vitalik Buter and the founder of Ethereum's post on cartels and how this issue can never be solved with EOS because there will only ever be 20 producers and there will always be collusion between these block producers. Um, I guess if you could just unpack um, governance and vote buying and what you think here, um, it's definitely at the forefront and you've done the most work on it.
1: Yeah, so it's a Super complex, super nuanced issue. Um, I disagree that quote-unquote governance can never be solved. If governance can never be solved, then we're all screwed because every blockchain has governance processes in place. Some of those take place off-chain. Some of those are formally defined. Some of them take place on-chain. Some are very loosely defined, but you know, there's governance present in all of these. There's politics present in all of these. Um, and there, there's benefits and trade-offs to each of those. So, for example, with um, with Bitcoin, you have this, you know, sort of what I think Pierre Richard described as off-chain peer-to-peer governance. That's um, not formally defined. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't take place on the blockchain. And, you know, that it, it helps Bitcoin in the sense that it it creates. Um, uh, it, it sort of creates a status quo bias for Bitcoin that helps it not change too quickly and sort of stay steady, which I think is, is important for an asset like Bitcoin. But it also creates a lot of complexities. It slows down the, the evolution of, of the platform. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's trade-offs there. With, with EOS, what you have is you have a, actually a very formally defined governance system because it actually takes place on chain. Um, and so the benefit is that you know everyone knows how governance works. Everyone knows what's going on because the process is, is auditable, and everyone who who owns EOS can participate in this. Um, now we've seen a lot of people say that like on-chain governance is screwed or that it's it's never going to be solved or whatever that is, and and I just think it's silly to draw that conclusion this early when we basically have only a small number of projects that have actually implemented on-chain governance. And we really haven't seen it at scale. You know, EOS is the, by far the largest example of on-chain governance, um, you know, with the kind of market cap and the kind of uh, traction that a project like EOS has. So it's it's really one of the, f- the foremost experiments in in this kind of, of governance process. Um, And because this is so new, you don't have a lot of developers who who are used to this idea of participating in the governance of a network that they have ownership in. And so, um, you know, a lot of what we're doing is trying to to educate token holders and investors to say hey like if you own EOS you actually do have a say in the direction that this platform takes and it's kind of your responsibility as a, as a holder to do so if you want to um, if you want the value of that of those holdings to increase if you want this network to succeed then you then you should be doing that and because it's so early because people are still kind of grappling with those ideas and learning about them um, we've seen low voter turnout we've seen low participation i think it's it's one the result of education and two the result of just having the right tools in place to be able to participate very easily and very securely and both of those things are a result of how young and new eos is Um, and both of those things are going to be um Problems that get solved as time goes on. Um, You know, we're working a lot on the education side. Um, A lot of the other block producers are working on the tooling side. And so with the combination of those two things, I think we'll get much higher voter participation in the future. I don't think it'll ever be, you know, 100%, but it'll be much higher than it is today. So what we're seeing happening with the recent accusations, which I should also point out that they're, they're just accusations. There's been no concrete proof, but the accusation was that there was an exchange that was using a large amount of votes that they controlled from, from clients who were keeping their tokens on the exchange to vote for a set of block producers who were offering kickbacks to the exchange um, to get those votes. Now, this particular exchange controlled, I think something like 50 million votes is, was the estimate. And um, you know that's 5% of the total supply of EOS. The reason they can have so much influence right now is because a very small percentage of, of token holders are actually voting. You know, if you had fifty percent of token holders who were voting for twenty-one or more block producers, then the influence of a of a five percent whale is is much smaller. Um, so it's really the if there was any manipulation going on, that was possible because the voter turnout was so low. So the first thing we have to think about is is how do we increase voter participation? And that's to me, that's really about education and, and tooling. Um, and we are seeing more and more of these participants who, um, who are starting to get um, interested in participating in governance. So crypto funds are one great example. These are crypto native investors who hold really big positions in these networks, who are following these networks on a day-to-day basis. And they want to be, if they wanna be activist investors, they can do so simply by, by virtue of, of the way that the network works. And so those parties are starting to actually participate in voting more. Um, then we've got parties like enterprises, you know, companies that are thinking about doing things related to EOS, whether those are, you know, wallet providers or, um, you know, or exchanges or block explorers or whatever it may be. You've got these companies that are sort of building infrastructure, and they may have token holdings and they want to participate in governance because their business relies on EOS. Um, we're now seeing developers who who create DApps who have. Um, you know, the DAP itself controls a large number of EOS. Those DAP developers are now participating in voting and they're voting for block producers who are honest who are gonna keep the chain running well and who are gonna scale up their infrastructure because those DAP developers want their DAP to, to succeed. And it can only do so when, when the network is running well. And so right now you've got a lot of speculation that's taking place on EOS. You've got a lot of people who are keeping their tokens on exchanges, just banking on an increase in the price. But as time goes on and more stuff actually gets built on these networks, more companies and enterprises and developers sort of um, build on top of it, then they have a much stronger long-term vested interest in the success of the network. And as they start to learn more about on-chain governance, they'll actually participate and they're going to vote for honest block producers.
0: Got um, it. That, and we, that's super interesting, wow. to And no, no, it's super interesting. And just before we go forward, I mean, you have a... On AuroraEOS.com, on your blog, you have a post on this. So, I'd like to flip this on its head a little bit and turn this around. I mean, in a future where you know voter participation is 80%, you know, what problems with EOS have then? I mean, what would be the problems at that point? Would it be that you know, in a perfect world where EOS is completely successful? I mean, would the problem there be then votes are centralized, you know, as they proxy their votes, or you know, what what are the issues if everything goes right? Mm-hmm.
1: I don't think so. I think when we have a future where there's 80% voter participation, we're in a really good place because you, you have to remember, I think one of the criticisms people say is like, oh, you know, everyone's just going to collude and, and try to pay each other and whatever, whatever. It's it's not that case. You know, if you have you have a, a, a dApp developer that's got a really successful dApp on EOS and they have large holdings, and then you've got an exchange, and then you've got a crypto hedge fund, and the, these are all parties with really big holdings that sort of... They want the network to succeed for different reasons, and they may have different ideas about about how that's best achieved, but they're going to um, use their position within the on-chain governance system to advocate for those changes. And what that creates is kind of this multi-party system of different large groups with with different interests that are kind of competing to move the network forward. And instead of having it become this like two-party rigged system like the like the you know United States political system where it's very hard to get things done, you're gonna have this multi-party system where anyone can spin up a voting block with no barrier to entry and sort of advocate for their interests. Um, and I think that creates a really healthy ecosystem of of different participants who, by virtue of having maybe different ideas about how the network should proceed, aren't going to collude with one another because they don't they don't have the same idea about how things move forward. But you also have people who are invested in the success of the network. So, like the you know a, you know a crypto investor and a DApp developer are both in that bucket, and they're going to start to realize as time goes on that if you have malicious block producers who are colluding with one another, that's not good for the network long term. And if your DApp is built on EOS and and that's the case, then then your your DApp is in trouble. So they're going to vote for honest block producers because that's what's best for their business in the long term. Same with crypto investors.
0: Got it. So just to unpack your point there. I mean, so if, if there's successful DApps like let's say a Facebook of blockchain and it's run on EOS and they purchase five percent of the EOS tokens and for their usage, your your point there is that they're going to vote for honest block producers um, to push the future of EOS forward. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And you know what do you think about the idea that you know hey there's only 21 block producers they could collude together. I mean that just like the idea of that in the back of people's minds. I mean. Do you think that that'll fade away with increased voter participation? I feel like that's always in yeah, back of so those heads.
1: The thing is, you have to think about what if they tried to collude. What can they do? So you have 21 block producers at any given time. In order to do any sort of do anything that's really malicious, you need 15 out of 21 block producers to simultaneously collude. And we have to remember that these 21 not only are they are they changing often. But they're literally independent companies located in, in different jurisdictions and countries and time zones and languages all over the world. And and the idea of you know all of them uh, colluding in order to do something malicious on the network, I think doesn't really align with, with the reality or sort of the incentive model. Because these block producers would realize that if they colluded and they did something malicious, it destroys the value of EOS. And that's how they're getting paid. These block producers want to stay in a, in a in a top 21 position because it provides them an ongoing income stream that's a, you know, it's a lucrative, profitable and, and interesting opportunity. If they were to maliciously collude, they, they would lose out on the, that future, those future rewards. And I think that's a powerful incentive to keep them honest. The other thing you have to remember is that if there were an attempt to do so, um, that, that token holders can actually vote out the, the mm-hmm. malicious block producers and replace them with other block producers. Um, and so ultimately, it's 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 not you know the the ultimate power lies with the token holders, not really with the block producers. The block producers are elected by the token holders and sort of given the privilege of acting as a validator. But that privilege can be revoked if they behave maliciously.
0: Got it. So I think I think that that's a key point that people aren't really talking about is that DApp developers and users of EOS have a vested interest in wanting the block produce in voting in block producers and 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 referendums that are great for the ecosystem. And then on the other side of your argument on your blog post, you talk about increasing voter participation, and mainly that's through allowing exchanges to allow customers to vote their tokens. I mean, do exchanges actually can, have a vested
1: interest? That's, to, to me, that's not the main reason, the, the main way that increased voter participation consent. I think probably in the short term, that, that's really important. And I'd like to see more exchanges do that. But, um, but I think it's really more about education and having proper tooling. So for example, Block One is working on an iPhone wallet that uses Apple's Secure Enclave to create and store the keys. So essentially that gives you a hardware wallet that's built into your phone and that allows you to sign transactions with Touch ID. And as we mentioned before, EOS has no individual transaction fees. So we're talking about a future theoretically, where you can have a hardware wallet on your phone and you can cast votes with the touch of a button, it gets instantly confirmed and there's no fee.
0: Got it. So what are your closing thoughts on EOS and what do you think of the catalyst for the next six months, the next year?
1: Yeah, so I think the main catalyst that we're probably gonna see is around usability and just jumps in the the number of, of dApps and the number of dApp users um as i mentioned before there's a, a block one wallet that's coming out that's going to offer free account creation you know kind of a, a hardware wallet within your phone um and i think that's going to help onboard a lot of new users into the ecosystem and then we're also just going to see a growth in the number of of dApps and the number of users um, we've already seen really impressive numbers out of eos if you go to dap radar and check out the eos app, um, and i think those numbers are going to continue to grow and at a certain point the industry is just going to have to um sort of start paying attention there and we're going to see more and more usability and um, more and more dApps being built. And I think we're going to start to see like, you know, new interesting things and, and maybe um, there will be like uh, a bigger company that decides to, to build an app on, on EOS because of the scalability and the other features that we outlined before um, or, you know, maybe it's a, that, that people start to use a decentralized exchange built on EOS and they see what can happen when you have a, a fully on-chain order book. When when you you solve some of the issues around usability that I think EOS has solved, it opens up um, you know the possibility for for really fast growth in the the user base and and what's what gets built. So that's what I'm on the lookout for over the next six months to a year.
0: Awesome. Well, Miles Snyder from AuroraEOS.com. Uh, Thank you so much for your time and for this deep dive on EOS. Thanks for having me, Tom. Always. And for our listeners, please like and review our podcast and visit Fifty One pct.io to subscribe for email updates. Thank you.